Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. For this week's podcast, we're sharing a conversation between Cover Crop Strategies Associate Editor Sarah Hill and Bill Johnson, Professor of Weed Science with Purdue University. In this interview, Johnson discusses how field management impacts weed problems, how herbicide applications influence cover crops and cash crops, herbicide antagonism, how cover crops can mitigate weed growth, and more. To get us started, uh, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of, of weed science at Purdue University. I've been here for about 18 years. I was at the University of Missouri for seven years prior to that in, in basically the same job. And, and my responsibilities are to, uh, to conduct research and uh, grower and uh, crop advisor educational programs on uh, weeds, the problems they can cause, and, and different methods to control them. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about um, how field management impacts what weed problems a grower might have. Yeah, and, and this is kind of a, an area that, uh, you know, someone could, could go on for hours um, on this topic. So basically, you know, anything you do to that field, whether it be tillage, um, the crops that are grown, and whether or not animals are grazed on it can have an impact on the weed populations. And so typically, you know, weeds are pretty amazing creatures, and they have the ability to uh, adapt both within a species and within a population of many species to whatever management practices are imposed on that field. And so if your goal is to reduce the population of something like a summer annual weed, what most likely happens in a case like that is you'll have other weeds that'll come in and fill the, the niche that's left by the, uh, by the practices that you're imposing on that field. And so that's, that's what makes the field of weed science um, challenging. It makes it exciting. Things are always changing, but it, it can also um, just, you know, kind of create headaches for the, the people that, are, that actually have to make a living off that land. <laughs> Absolutely. So hypothetically, what happens if a grower doesn't use any type of weed control in a field? What's kind of the, the range of scenarios that can result? Yeah, and it so that's a great question because it really kind of depends on what the weed population is like when um, the grower starts um, using no weed control practices. If you have a relatively low weed pressure in that field, um, you're just going to have a few weeds that initial year. Those weeds will will go to seed, and then you know they'll, they'll they will become the dominant species in that field if no management tactics are done. But you know again. 
fields with low weed pressure in the seed bank um, can be successful for a year or two. But, you know, when, when we think about many of our weeds producing at least thousands, if not tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of seeds, weeds can quickly overtake an area if management practices or a competitive crop is not grown in, in that field to, to help keep the weed pressure uh, beat back. But essentially the worst case scenario is the weeds are, are able to outcompete the crop and, and you're not able to harvest a crop from that field if, if that was the goal for that piece of land. Yikes, so that, that worst case scenario is a pretty tough one for a grower certainly to, to handle. Yes, um, yes. So if a grower perhaps was using maybe a pre-emergence herbicide, why, why would a pre-emergence maybe be a very important step for a grower to take in the, the growing process to help control those weeds? Yeah, and I, and I think if we're referring to kind of our main um, grain crops like corn and soybeans in, in the Midwestern U.S., um, pre-emergence herbicides are, are so important because they control a broad range of species. Um, almost all of them now are off patent, so they're very low cost. And, and what they do is they give your crop a chance to get a head start on the weeds. So your residual herbicides, if, if they're providing three to six weeks of control early in the season and your crop is able to come up and get established, um, that gives that crop a head start and a better chance to optimize the, the, the yield um, out of that field. The other thing that pre-emerge herbicides do, even if they're not 100% effective, they do reduce the population of weeds. And as a result, you have um, a lower weed population that's competing with your crop and a lower weed population that's going to be exposed to post-emerge herbicides. And, and it's going to make the job of that post-emerge herbicide much easier if, if the weed population is lower. So my, that's perfect lead into my next question, which focuses on why have some growers decided to maybe shift to only using post-emergence herbicide? Yeah, good question. And I think what, what drove that was the effectiveness the success and the low cost of the Roundup Ready system. So essentially, once that herbicide went off patent, um, it would cost more to drive the sprayer across the field than it did to, to spray the herbicide. So the, the equipment costs were essentially greater than the herbicide cost. That's how cheap it was. And you were controlling dozens of weeds. And so that mindset became pretty dominant and then the, uh, the chemical companies would incentivize growers to do that by basically saying, if the first spray doesn't work, we'll, we'll help pay for the second spray. So it incentivized that behavior. And then um, that behavior now has persisted as we've gotten more um, herbicide resistant traits put into soybean that we can use now with Liberty Link, Dicamba, 2,4-D, and the HPPD inhibitors, the group 27 herbicides. So again, it's, it's sort of a behavior pattern that was initiated with Roundup Ready and it, it, is, it has persisted because of some market forces and now it's kind of become ingrained, unfortunately. So with that, are there any concerns about some of those herbicide tolerant uh, weed 
mitigation technologies uh, becoming a problem or um, causing difficulty for growers? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I think that's, that's kind of the, um, the treadmill that we're on right now is um, with the introduction of the Extend Soybean System and the Enlist Soybean System, now we still have a, a post-emergence centered um, strategy that, that's, that's promoted pretty heavily by, the, by both the seed and the chemical industry. And we tend to get on a treadmill. So what happens is we spray that post-emerge treatment. If it doesn't kill all the weeds, um, there's these company guarantees or rebates that'll take place that will incentivize you to spray it again. And so what happens is you continually put this selection pressure out there for herbicide resistant weeds, which just leads to a, a resistance problem developing. And so with, uh, with the discovery now of more metabolism-based herbicide resistance mechanisms in weeds, we, weeds now have the ability to metabolize um, some herbicides that may never have been applied to those fields. You've essentially selected for those resistance mechanisms by applying another herbicide. And so there's, I think there's some danger with some of these uh, new herbicide resistance traits that if we don't get more integrated weed management strategies into our systems with tillage, cover crops, pre-emerge herbicides, crop rotation, that some of these new herbicide resistance traits in soybeans may have a shelf life of 10 years or even less if, if we don't change some of our um, use strategies. That's, that's too bad. Almost like creating a problem when you're trying to solve one. Specifically, what weed species are growers typically having to deal with uh, in some of these fallow fields that maybe they're spraying? Um, and do those weed species vary based on geography? Yeah, so that, that's another good question. So typically when we see weeds in, in fallow areas, it could be drowned out areas. It could be a year like we had in, uh, what was that, 2019 with all the rain, where here in the eastern Corn Belt, um, we had almost 20% of our, our acres that were not sprayed or that were, that were prevent plant acres. And so a crop could not be planted on them. So in situations like that, what typically happens is your summer annuals that are normally the targets of our herbicide programs tend to be the, the dominant weeds in there. So things like um, giant ragweed, mare's tail, lamb's quarter, fox, uh, foxtail, um, the water hemp, and in some areas of palmer amaranth. So what happens is those weeds are able to basically grow uninhibited they produce a lot of seed, which replenishes the soil seed bank, and then that creates a headache for many years to come. That, that puts a lot of pressure on any weed control tactic when we allow that much seed to enter the seed bank. So if we're talking about other fallow areas, I guess it, it depends a little bit on the land use patterns, but specifically referring to our, our corn and soybean fields, whatever the main targets were in that geography, and again, that can vary a little bit depending on where you're at in, in the United States. Um, the ones that are the main targets of our herbicides typically are the ones that go to seed in these prevent plant situations. Okay. So maybe this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about um, with herbicide tolerance and, and those types of things. But um, explain for our listeners a little bit about 
herbicide antagonism, what it is and when it occurs? Yeah, so herbicide antagonism occurs when two herbicides are mixed in the tank and one herbicide decreases the activity of another one on a target weed species. So this was a field that we, this is a, a field of study that got quite a bit of attention in the late 80s and early 90s um, before the Roundup Ready technology came onto the marketplace. And we were using three and four way tank mixtures in, uh, in soybeans in particular um, to control weeds. We would typically have a grass herbicide in there and at least two broadleaf herbicides in there. And sometimes some, some fertilizer and, and adjuvants in there as well. And a, and a common antagonism problem um, was that the broadleaf herbicides would antagonize the grass herbicide. And so the grass herbicide didn't work as well. So typically we would control the broadleaf weeds, but the grass herbicides were struggling. So we had to do things like apply the grass herbicide separately, or we increase the rate of the grass herbicide in order to overcome that antagonism. Now, more recently, the antagonism that we deal with um, still has to do with, with grass weeds, and it's primarily things like dicamba and some of the group dicamba or 2,4-D and some of the group 15 herbicides that are antagonizing grass control. So it's kind of the same scenario that we had in the early 80s. It's just, you know, slightly different herbicides. So even though Roundup is a great grass herbicide, and Roundup is a better grass herbicide than the grass herbicides we had in the early 80s, we can still reduce the activity of, of Roundup on grass weeds um, in certain situations where we have dicamba or 2,4-D um, with one of the group 15 herbicides. So that's a, that's a problem for areas that, that typically are always getting a spray for volunteer corn control because volunteer corn is a grass weed. And so we've run into some situations where we've had to do follow-up treatments for volunteer corn or increase the grass herbicide in order to get that to get that weed controlled in those tank mixtures. So we've talked a little bit about weed species on fallow fields, but are there certain weed species that pop up at specific times during the growing season? For example, uh, you know, right before planting versus towards the fall and, and the end of the growing season. Yes. And so we, we have these charts that we use in, in our winter meetings that show um, the emergence times of many of our most problematic weeds. So we have weeds, for example, that like to emerge early in the year. So foxtail, lamb's quarter, giant wet ragweed. That's typically a weed that has started emerging when we start our planting operations in the spring. Now, weeds like um, morning glories, um, water hemp, um, burr cucumber, um, crabgrass, and some of those, those are weeds that emerge later in the summer. And then we have weeds that, that like to emerge in the fall. So mare's tail is one. Mare's tail will emerge in the fall. It'll also emerge in the summer, but it'll emerge in the fall. Um, chickweed, henbit, purple dead nettle, and some of those that emerge in the fall. So it, within a, a given field, um, Typically, you're going to have, um, you know, kind of um, all of those weeds. And particularly, if you're in a no-till situation, you've got to deal with the winter annuals because you don't have tillage to take the winter annuals out of there. Um, but typically, a, a field <clears throat> is going to have some early emerging summer annuals, 
some summer annuals that emerge in the middle part of the growing season, and they've evolved to do this to avoid tillage and herbicide applications early in the year. And then if you're a no-till producer, you're going to have some weeds that emerge in the fall of the year. We'll get back to the conversation with Sarah Hill and Bill Johnson in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Bill Johnson as he talks about fall herbicide applications and why they're useful for combating perennial weeds like dandelion and Canada thistle. You mentioned earlier uh, using a a pre-emergence herbicide application to get ahead of some of those weeds. What about um, fall herbicide application? Which weed species uh, would that be specifically pointed at? Yeah, so the fall herbicide applications are something that we've always promoted very heavily. Um, in, the, in the eastern Corn Belt, we're primarily targeting things like uh, mare's tail, um, henbit, chickweed, purple dead nettle, um, dandelion, and, and some of the perennial weeds like thistle <clears throat> that will still have some vegetative growth um, exposed in, in the fall. So what you're trying to do with those fall applied herbicides is you're trying to take out these weeds that emerge in the fall. And typically in the fall, you have some relatively good growing conditions. You know, if we think about October weather, you know, we have a lot of days where the daytime air temps can be anywhere from about 55 to 80 degrees. Um, Most of the time we have some good soil moisture. So we have good um, conditions for actively growing plants. And herbicides work much better on actively growing plants than they do on plants that are kind of dormant. So many of these weeds that emerge in the fall are also going to be there in the spring as well. But when we do our burn down treatments in the spring, sometimes we can really struggle to control weeds like mare's tail, dandelion, and chickweed. Um, because these weeds are, have been kind of knocked into a coma by the, uh, by the cold weather and the herbicides just don't work as well. Um, the other thing that the weeds, the, that these winter annual weeds can do in the spring is they can form a mulch and they can um, keep the soil cold and, and, and help it retain moisture, which can delay planting days. So that's one of the reasons why we like to target uh, weeds in agronomic fields, the, the winter annual weeds in particular, uh, in the fall. Um, another reason that we like to control weeds in the fall is some perennial weeds that, um, that are still vegetative in the fall, they are sending food reserves down to the root system in the fall to help it survive through the winter. And so if, if we can take advantage of, of the change in the physiology of that plant and, and have the herbicides translocated to the root systems as well, the, the root systems are going to be more susceptible to be killed by the herbicides. And again, that go, that's for perennial weeds, weeds like Canada thistle, um, pokeweed, and then some of the, the tree species that we get as well. Okay. So now 
are some of those winter annual weed species different than some of those uh, late appearing weeds that might pop up in the fall? Yes. And so, so the big, the, the, the characteristic that, um, that makes a winter annual weed problematic is the fact that it can emerge in the fall. And there's a lot of summer annuals that can emerge in the fall as well. Giant ragweed, pigweed, velvet leaf, and things like that, they can emerge in the fall. But the summer annual weeds are killed by the cold temperatures. The winter annual weeds have the ability to survive the cold temperatures and, and sort of a state of a coma through the wintertime or hibernation or whatever you want to call it. And then when the when the weather conditions warm up in the spring, then they start growing again in the spring. So that's what kind of separates what we consider to be a, a true summer annual from a, from a true winter annual is just that ability to survive in the wintertime. We can see some of our winter annual weeds actually come up in July in cool, moist environments. So for example, when we have a cool July, you can go into a cornfield or a soybean field and you can see little chickweed and henbit seedlings that are coming up basically in the summertime. And they'll just huh. stay there and they'll stay kind of short until the crop is harvested. And then they might grow a little bit in the fall. And then they'll kind of go into this hibernation phase. And then they'll, they'll resume growth in the spring. Fascinating. Wow. Those weeds are sure hardy species. That's for sure. So uh, let's kind of transition to talking about how cover crops uh, can work with uh, mitigating weeds. Talk through a little bit um, how cover crops work to reduce some of that weed pressure. Yeah, so, you know, I think the, 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 the easiest analogy to make is that when, when plant species are growing in an area, they're going to compete for sunlight, they're going to compete for moisture, they're going to compete for nutrients, and they're going to have the ability to kind of sense um, the other plants around them. They can sense that by the wavelengths of light that are transmitted um, through, through their leaves or, or bouncing off the stems and stuff like that. And so the way that, um, whether it's a cover crop or a summer annual crop, well, let me back up a little bit. What, so if we think about the principles of what we try to do in our summer annual crops, we're asking our herbicides to provide about five or six weeks of weed control during the season. And then the crop canopy provides weed control for the rest of the growing season. So that, that's the principle in, uh, in summer annual crops. When we think about cover crops, it's a very similar scenario. Um, we're basically planting a species out there that we know will emerge um, in a uniform manner. We know that it will compete with the weed for sunlight moisture, um, nutrients, and then, you know, space, for lack of a better term. And so by, by having this competing species out there, um, we, we have the ability to suppress the non-desirable species. Now, the beauty with the cover crops is that we, we get ground cover, we get uniform ground cover. Typically, when weeds cover the ground, they're rather patchy in nature, and you don't get complete coverage of the entire field. With the cover crop, you're going to get coverage of the entire field if you've got a good seed source and, and good germination conditions. And then you're going to protect the soil from, uh, um, from erosion. Um, you're going to capture some, some carbon and you're going to keep some nutrients in place by keeping the soil in place. And then it helps to break up 
you know, some compaction in the seed bed as well. So again, by, by having the cover out there over the entire field, um, it's, it's competing with weeds and then providing all the soil benefits as well. And then the whole idea then is, is you've grown a cover crop that's more competitive than the weeds, and then you're able to come back and terminate the cover crop the next growing season so you're able to plant your, your cash crop. Now, in some cases, the cover crops have, have another um, value as well, and they're used for grazing. Or in the case of wheat, um, you're harvesting a grain off of it, and you might be taking some straw off of it as well. Um, but again, they, they sort of serve multiple roles out there. But again, what you're really trying to do is much like a summer annual crop, you're trying to get some ground cover and create some competition. You know, there, there's, always, there's been some talk about allelopathy. And allelopathy, um, and allelopathy is the ability of a crop species, whether it's a, a summer crop or a winter crop, like a cover crop, to produce a chemical that's inhibitory to weeds. So there are some compounds that some of these plants that can produce that do that, but it's so unpredictable and so hard to manage that I think it's much easier to kind of look at the fact that cover crops are producing ground cover and biomass than to really think about the whole allelopathy um, side of things because it's, it's just so difficult to understand. Okay, so which cover crop species have you seen that are more effective competitors when compared to some of those weed species? Yeah, so that, that's a good question as well. So again, I think um, if we think about it from the standpoint of producing biomass, we have had really good luck with cereal rye and with winter wheat. And whether those species are grown alone or whether they're interseeded with, uh, with something with a clover of some sort, um, you know, that simply adds, adds some more biomass and also fixes a little bit of nitrogen as well. I think those high biomass ones have been very reliable in suppressing uh, things like mare's tail. Um, if we go into the spring of the year, it can help in some cases with some of the early emerging summer annual weeds. It can kind of delay the time in which they emerge and certainly reduce, reduce the densities. Um, I think with some of the lower biomass cover crops, it really depends a little bit on the weed seed bank and what the predominant species um, are that are in the field. So I know with, uh, with things like uh, with chickweed, um, chickweed and henbit, some of the low biomass producing cover crops have not been all that effective in, in suppressing um, chickweed. And so again, I think if, if weed control is kind of the primary thing that we're going after, the, the easier thing to do is something that produces a lot of biomass, something that establishes um, quickly in the fall so we can get suppression of those winter annual weeds. And, and, and that, that's kind of the strategy to, to shoot for when, when that's the primary objective of the cover crop. Okay, so now um, if a, a grower is using cover crops as a weed pressure tool, when is the best timing for termination of those cover crops? Yeah, so uh, again, that's a, that's a great question as well. Um, I wish there was a one size fits all for, for that question. <laughs> what I would say is that with a weed like mare's tail, um, getting the cover crop established in the fall where you're preventing that fall emergence flush of, of mare's tail 
Um, I would almost argue that the fall establishment timing is probably more important than the termination timing in the spring because you're trying to inhibit the growth in the fall. Now, for if you're trying to um, suppress some of the summer annual weeds, I think that's where your termination timing becomes termination timing in the spring becomes really important. So, you know what what we have generally seen is that. You're always trying to hit kind of a sweet spot of terminating the cover crop when the herbicide is going to be effective, and yet some of the weeds that have emerged in that cover crop are still going to be sensitive to the um, to the herbicide that you're using to terminate the cover crop. Because again, you're not going to get 100% control out of a cover crop. You're really trying to reduce the the density and, and the size of it. So, I think in in soybeans. Um, what we have seen in our work is that if you terminate <clears throat> right at planting or, or shortly after the planting time, um, you'll do it. You'll get maximum amount of biomass produced and you'll get the maximum weed suppressive effect from the cover crop. The only thing you got to be a little bit careful of is if your mare's tail got a little big on you, the few mare's tail that would have come up in that cover crop, that it may be difficult to terminate those if they've gotten to be 10 inches higher more. Now in, in corn, it's kind of a different animal because we wanna be careful about not, um, not creating too com competitive of an environment early in the spring for moisture, nitrogen and light and things like that. So I think in corn, um, I would always wanna terminate that cover crop before planting because I don't want those corn plants competing with the cover crop early in the growing season because we've just seen more detrimental effects on corn um, competing with a cover crop than we have with the soybeans. So again, to kind of summarize, with soybeans um, at planting or slightly after planting, I think is, is an optimal timing if, you're, if weed suppression is the goal. With corn, I would be pretty reluctant to go, um, I would pretty, I, I would go up to planting, but I would not want to go much beyond planting with corn. Okay. Great. Well, we are running short on time today. So uh, where can our listeners go for more information on both cover crops and using cover crops to mitigate weeds? So we have a, uh, we have a, a website where we posted the results of a lot of our research projects. Um, the weed control guide and some of our publications on cover crops are also at this site. So if you simply Google Purdue Weed Science, um, there's a number of different resources that you can go to to, to catch those. Um, Marcelo Zimmer is, is a, a, a technician that works with me. We also post a lot of our work on our um, social media sites and our, in our Facebook sites as well. So you can find us on social media and, uh, and find some short articles that we've written as well. Thanks to Sarah Hill with Cover Crop Strategies and Bill Johnson of Purdue University for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. 
If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. Thank you.